Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount. We're working our way through this section of Jesus' first recorded sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. It's the first printed in the New Testament. We come this morning to the fifth example by Jesus of how he wants his disciples to live rightly or righteously. It's about here, it's about how we respond when we are mistreated or when we are burdened by another. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's holy and inspired word, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, thank you that every word is inspired uh, in this book. And uh, the words from the mouth of Jesus, no less. We pray that this word would teach us, uh, correct us, rebuke us and train us in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work in jesus name we ask it do it by your grace and favor through the work of the spirit amen amen well how do we deal with it when someone insults us or when someone wants to take what belongs to us Or someone expects us to drop everything and serve them or give them. Not just our time or our energy, but our our money. How how do we deal with these things? Is our first response, I'll get you for that. Or I'm going to make it hard for you. I will fight you to the death before I do anything for you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous preacher at Westminster in London, the the chapel there for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. He had an 11-year ministry in a small village, uh, Welsh village, before that. There he met a man named Mark McCann, who was the meanest man in town. He loved to fight. He, He was something like 60 years old, and he had never yet lost a fight. He grew a mustache invited a long mustache and invited people to comment on it just so that they could have been said to have started the fight because he wanted to fight he was so mean one time 
he had gone to the other room when his wife had put his dinner out on a plate. He was washing up and the dog had taken some of his dinner. He, he took that dog to the other room and with the bread knife beheaded it. He was a mean man. And then he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he was pretty much illiterate at the time. So Martin Lloyd-Jones had to show him in the Bible where the name Jesus was to be found. And seeing the name Jesus, he wept and he kissed the word. And he became not one of the meanest men in town, but he became one of the sweetest men in town. Jesus makes a difference in how we respond to others. How has he begun to sweeten you? How has he begun to sweeten your response to personal injury or insults or the aggravations of others' expectations of you? When you feel your cause is righteous, when you know you're in the right and they're wrong, how then? We tend to lash out, don't we? We, we tend to lose control. But Jesus here says we are not just not to lash out. He actually says we are to seek to do good to them. And so we want to think about this passage, and I want to highlight in three parts. In the first place, verse 38, we learn here that disciples of Jesus are not to respond to others with personal vengeance. Uh, look at how Jesus puts it when he quotes Moses, but he's, he's actually quoting what the Pharisees said, but what they quoted is, Moses, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, as a kid, I learned this principle of massive retaliation from the older neighbor kids. Don't let anyone get away with anything. Make them, make them fear you. Uh, I was usually on the opposite end of that. Occasionally it was good nature. You tickle me and I will tickle torture you, which does get miserable. But occasionally, of course, it was mean-spirited. If you pinch me, I'll punch you. And I'll punch you so hard you'll never pinch me again. But I learned an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth the way that the Pharisees taught it, bringing that experience to it. Not the way Jesus taught it and not the way Moses taught it, in fact. Jesus quotes here word for word from Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. He has one of those three or all of them in mind. You can look at them some other time. It's called... Uh, by folks who study the law, lex talionis, the law of the talon, the law of the claw. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. For example, Exodus 21 says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, that's Leviticus, that's Deuteronomy, that's Exodus. Occasionally, uh, maybe you've experienced this, you run across these, uh, maybe by email, these lists of uh, questions uh, skeptics will sometimes snidely bandy about that seek to portray the Bible as nonsensical or irrational or even cruel. I mean, one classic example is you'll, you'll have 
people quote the Old Testament's injunctions against eating shellfish for the Jews of old. They don't recognize Jesus' words in the New Testament saying all foods are clean. And so then they hammer Christians for eating shrimp as if you quit believing the Bible or you contradict it with your life. When in fact, you don't. And they're trying to play a game with Old Testament text out of their own ignorance sometimes. Another example that shows up here in this passage, and it, and it exposes really our, our innate antipathy to God. To quote the passage, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? And then imagine that the God of the Old Testament is some terrible ogre, while we know that the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and compassion. But that is to look at the Old Testament law through the eyes of a heart that actually loves vengeance and revenge. It's to look at the law through the eyes of a cruel heart, which is the very thing this law was intended to curb. For the law, this law, wasn't given to allow personal feuds and violence against people. It was to restrain the excessive retaliation due to people engaging in personal resentments. And far from permitting personal vengeance, it forbade it. It put the execution of the law in matters of justice in the courts of law and out of the passions and anger of the individual who was hurt. So we read... Eye for an eye. And we think, there it is. God's tough on crime. He wants criminals treated harshly. We should really put the hammer down when they do wrong. And go ahead. Pay them back personally. But it's not urging that at all. It's not urging revenge. It's revenge. It's demanding restraint. It's not permission to poke out someone's eye if they poke yours. It is saying, if someone pokes out your eye, the compensation due to you should be equal to, but not in excess of, your loss. And these things done in the court system became monetized. They didn't chop off people's arms and hands, but they monetized the value of the loss and brought compensation in accordance with it. It was never about personal revenge. It was about public restitution. It wasn't about private individuals retaliating, but about the public courts being just. The punishment should fit the crime. That's justice. So, for example, Exodus chapter 22. If a man steals his neighbor's ox or sheep, he must pay back two oxen or sheep. Restoring the one he stole and adding one of his own so that the thief loses precisely what his neighbor would have lost. Again, in the case of perjury in the Old Testament, a convicted perjurer must suffer the same punishment that his lie would have inflicted upon his victim. Straightforward, but not excessive, justice. There's a great wisdom in this principle of I for an eye, in the court of law. In fact, Jesus will affirm it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, when he warns us, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
Paul affirms it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, he means the church, God will destroy him. In itself, eye for an eye ensures criminals are treated justly and protected from malice and blood feuds. Theft is punished by restitution, not by maiming. And so it's unlike Old Testament law and Jesus' words here. It's unlike Sharia law where the thief has his hand cut off. We know that the hand is worth far more than what is stolen. That kind of law is cruel because it's excessive. It's permanently maiming. So God's law in the Old Testament, and Jesus isn't quibbling with Moses, called for equal justice for all under the law without excessiveness. But, but how do we read it, maybe? Well, a hard heart sees these laws as bloodthirsty, savage, and merciless. When, in fact, God is thwarting that evil in us. So we're not to respond with personal vengeance when we are insulted and injured and harmed by others. That's the first thing I want you to see. That's not how disciples should, should, should act. Secondly, I want you to see this, verse 39. Disciples of Jesus are to be guided by the spirit of love, not revenge. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If he slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Look, Jesus, again, is not disagreeing with Moses. He's disagreeing with the Pharisees' false interpretation about Moses. This uh, Greek verb here, to resist, means to oppose, uh, withstand, set oneself against someone or something. Jesus says, do not. Now, do not misunderstand Jesus. Jesus himself is more opposed to evil than all of us combined. And he is righteously opposed to all that is evil. Yet he says to us, return good for evil. It's about here how we live personally. It's not about courts of law, but personal life. Jesus here is not forbidding police officers serving for public safety or military for national defense or courts of law for the adjudication of disputes. Jesus is not here requiring strict pacifism, not forbidding disciples to serve in the military where an army resists evil. After all, when soldiers asked John the Baptist, these are Roman soldiers, asked John the Baptist, who was preaching repentance, what should we do for repentance? He said, don't steal and be content with your wages. He didn't say quit your job. He didn't say get out of the military just as soon as you can. He didn't say in the midst of battle, I want you to lay down your arms. And we know also that the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 said to rulers or about rulers, about governors, they do not bear the sword in vain or to no purpose. What purpose do they bear the sword? They purpose it. They bear it to punish wrongdoers. And to promote or commend what is good. So this is true whether you divide military and police police actions, whether you separate international and domestic law enforcement, as we do, or if you combine them in military and civilian 
uh, life, like in uh, and police actions and military actions together in one man, some kind of soldier at home and soldier abroad. To serve and protect is a good motto, and it's an honorable calling for Christians is the point I'm making here. We should and we ought to defend ourselves, particularly the defenseless. We ought to start with widows and orphans. Defensive wars do that. They defend the helpless. The defender, we might add, even loves his foe as he defeats him in a defensive war. For it is good, as Dan Doriani put it, it is good for the proud to be humbled by defeat. The same is true of terrorists. They should be stopped for their own good as well as for everyone else's. But in the midst of that, we must not hate our enemies. Jesus is saying how I relate to evil and seeking justice in the law courts judicially is different than how I treat the evil person personally. So Leviticus 19 verse 18 made it very explicit. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We need this because we have a large capacity for retaliation and vengeance and payback. We think we have a right to be compensated justly and exactly by others. We say, I have a right not to be overly burdened by you. And we want to stand on those rights. And Jesus says, let go of your rights. Don't respond with revenge or vengeance. Respond with love. The law said, be restrained in justice in courts. Don't overdo it. And it said, personally then, leave it to God and the government. And the flip side of all of that is personally, don't restrain the evil person, but be unrestrained toward them in generosity. I mean, he explodes things here. Love them, he says. Give them what is necessary, more than what's necessary, more than what's demanded, or even asked for, for the sake of love and mercy. You'll see that in the four examples he gives, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. He gives four examples of what he means by don't resist. And here we see Jesus' disciples are to love and show kindness even toward our enemies. We're to seek to win others by, by the meekness expressed in kindness, not by the assertion of power and rights demanding to be respected. Uh, look, at, look at the four examples of loving somebody who wants to take something from you. Verse 39, it concerns personal insults. Verse 39, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now again, Jesus is not teaching here against self-defense for somebody who wants to beat the snot out of you and drop you in a hospital. He's not teaching that you must take a physical abuse to the point of being murdered. He's not saying you have to take a beating from every bully on the playground. He is not counseling any spouse to submit to domestic violence and never call the police. He's not counseling that. He is not forbidding you defending yourself from a rapist or a terrorist. He's not forbidding those things here. He's talking about insults. They slap you on the right cheek. Now look, if I slap you on the right cheek, where'd you feel it? I mean, <laughs> shoot, blew that whole thing. 
If I strike you with my right hand, where do you feel it? You feel it on your left. Right? That, and most people, right-handed, Jesus is just using common illustration. And here he's got them being struck on the right cheek. Which means what? It's the backhand slap. Which, very well understood in Jesus' day by the rabbis, was taught to be doubly insulting. The little flick of the wrist slap on the face. You could be taken to court for that insult. And what you could be charged in money was an annual wage. It was considered so disrespectful to the person. It's not a matter of damage to the face Jesus is talking about. He's talking about damage to your reputation and feelings. This person thinks little of you, and it hurts your pride. It hurts your social standing. Maybe they've commented publicly, and, it, and, it, and it's libelous. And instead of demanding, meet me at dawn with pistols, you turn the other cheek. You ask God, of course, to defend your honor, and in part, you act honorably. You could sue them and receive monetary compensation, but instead you suffer the wrong, like your Savior, who it speaks of in Isaiah chapter 50, when it says of the coming servant, I give my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my, my face from disgrace and spitting. You remember this is fulfilled in the life of Jesus when the Jewish police spat on him, blindfolded him and smacked him in the face. Tell us who hit you. And the Romans followed suit. They crowned him with thorns. They dressed him in a robe of purple. They knelt before him and they mocked him. Hail King of the Jews. They too spat on him and struck him. The Apostle Peter tells us that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Turn the other cheek means let the insult come. Don't stand on your right and reputation. Now, how can any of us do that? This is a high bar. And I want to say to us all, we can't unless we, unless we are sure our reputation is forever already secure before the throne of God's own court. You have got to find your identity in him and know who you are in him. That he knows the worst you have ever done and it is far worse than whatever that person is saying about you. And you know it's true. And yet, he forgave you. He accepts you. He loves you. He says, you are mine and I am yours. I delight to be your father and to have you be my child. You have got to be so rooted and grounded in that identity that no matter what somebody says about you, it pales in comparison to who you truly are. And it pales in comparison to what God has truly said about you. Only then the poor in spirit can live like this. Now that's the first thing when you're insulted. The second example concerns giving beyond what's demanded. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
Now, it was possible in that day to sue somebody for the shirt off their back. Literally, that's Jesus kind of describing that garment. The person, a poor person might have one and only one. Uh, most people would have just a couple. Changes of kind of clothing here. That's the tunic worn directly on the body, a loincloth underneath. And then there was the cloak he's speaking of. And this would have been like a really heavy coat. And it would have doubled in function as a, 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 a blanket for sleeping to keep you warm at night. In, in Exodus 22, it said that a man might take his neighbor's cloak as a pledge, but you had to return it every evening. Because this, uh, this poor man couldn't be so uh, mistreated by the rich man who took his cloak in pledge that he, that he strips him of everything and leaves him to shiver all night long. So it had to be returned at night. Here Jesus says, this guy took everything. He took everything else, that is. He left the cloak, but he's boasting. I took the shirt off that man's back. He, he, he's taken you to the court, and following the letter of the law, he sued you for all he could get. This guy who wants to take everything from you, Jesus says, give him even more. So if a man is suing you for everything, give him everything to what? Well, he doesn't make it explicit, but I think to shame him. And shame is not a bad thing when one ought to properly be ashamed. Well, now look, wrongly applied, you could take Jesus' words here and you could find one truly wicked man in the world and he could take the wealth of every single believer across the face of the earth. And that is absurd, but it shows the absurdity of saying, Jesus is saying, you have to get rid of everything you own if somebody asks you for some of it. But Jesus is saying, love this enemy by arresting his conscience about how hard-hearted he is being. And he'll have no smiles when he boasts of it in the crowd. So if your roommate once again borrows your sweater without asking, offer her all your sweaters. Or maybe you've been in an inheritance fight. You couldn't believe it. Somebody's died and then brothers and sisters break out against one another. Nieces and nephews come out of nowhere. You want, you think, you want what our parents designated for me? And your cause feels righteous. You're trying to take the silver and the handmade bedspreads? What do you do? Jesus says, give them the picture albums, even all the ones with you in it. And they're not even in it. And give them the china cabinet and all the china too. Give up your rights. Let Let them trample on you so badly, the effect would be they'd be ashamed of themselves and maybe humbled for their greed. Don't hold a grudge though. Don't hold a grudge. Seek to do them good. Jesus says. Now, how would you do that? I want to say again, only those who are secure in Christ, who know the beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Only those who know that they are co-heirs with Christ of the universe 
could have the freedom to give up what they can't take to the grave with them for the sake of loving one who wants to hurt them. Thirdly, when they compel your service, verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, Jesus is, again, picking out something that was very common in that day. Roman soldiers, you may remember, it was their custom. It was permitted. It actually goes back to the ancient per- Persians. Uh, we have, um, how, do we do, how do we deliver mail in America in the ancient West, right? Through the Pony Express. And every so far, they had horses fed and ready to go. And the mailman just, you know, swapped horses along the way. Well, the ancient Persians did something like that, but, but they basically said... I get to take you and make you carry the load for a while. And then when I get there, I get to make another person carry the load. Well, the Romans have picked that up. And, and, and you could, under Roman law, as a Roman soldier, impress into service someone for one Roman mile, which was actually a thousand paces. You, you, you may remember that scene at the cruci- uh, just prior to the crucifixion. Jesus is carrying his cross and uh, he stumbles. Under the weight of it and, of course, the exhaustion and torture he'd experienced. And, and he couldn't carry it. And the soldiers wouldn't carry it. And so they impressed Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. That was no unusual thing. It was legally permissible. And so for us, it would be like if we were suddenly governed by a foreign country and they had stationed soldiers all over, including Siloam. And one of them said, I want you to carry my groceries from Market 111 to about JBU or so. How degrading, you might think. Forced to help a, a foreign oppressor carry the tools of his oppression. A Roman soldier's weapons, maybe. In one way, what Jesus is doing is he is rebuking the zealots of his day who were committed to the violent overthrow of the Roman government. Jesus said, my disciples aren't going to do that. And in another way, of course, he was giving sound counsel to anybody because, I mean, you refuse a Roman soldier and you could be crucified. So Jesus says, instead of resenting it, what? I mean, you be natural to resent it do it with a grudging heart but what does jesus say take it as an opportunity go the extra mile serve them more and better than they ever expected you would or could have asked you to do show them you are free free over your captain not enslaved to him but in service to God for the good of others. There are two ways, says Kent Hughes, to do a task like taking out the trash. Well, this, okay, this is my illustration. Sorry. Next one's his. Uh, taking out the trash. Kitchen trash. You can take it out and drag it through the house while it leaks chicken juice everywhere. Or you can double bag it and carry it out so it safely arrives at the trash can, right? You can do one with a, well, you could do both with an angry, resentful heart. But you're probably not doing that first one with a cheerful heart unless you're really cold. So, Kent Hughes says there are two ways to wash dishes. You can water them with your tears 
or sing hymns while you work. Jesus wants the revolutionary response of cheerfulness going the extra mile. When an employer puts work on your desk at the end of a long week, how do you take it? When you rent a cabin and part of the agreement says you'll clean up after yourself and take the trash out, sweep the floor, do you leave it better than you found it? That'd be going the extra mile, wouldn't it? Show them, in other words, you serve a better emperor and you belong to a better empire than the Romans ever had. Go the extra mile. Fourth, when someone wants to wield your generosity of spirit and compassion and possessions against you, what do you do? Verse 42, be generous to the needy. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. When someone wants to wield it against you, don't live eye for an eye towards them, but ask, how can I help you? Look how important this is in marriage. I mean, you... It's a disaster if in marriage you embrace the proposition that to make 100% of a marriage, I need to give 50% and my spouse needs to give 50%. And until they're giving 50, I don't have to give 50. I'll give 45 if they're giving 45. I'll give 30 if they're giving 30. No, 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 no. You commit to all in 100%, no matter how. Your spouse has or may in the future still fail you don't ask what's the minimum number of dishes i gotta do around here to get you off my back have a generous attitude jesus says who gives generously it's a hard attitude now i realize it raises the question of course must i give to everyone who sticks out their hand i heard of an oxford professor who read these words and took that view and he became destitute while keeping six alcoholics in liquor We might ask, though, is that love for the neighbor, which is what Jesus is commanding? You've got to read the Spirit and and not mistake it and sit only on the letter. What does love call for, Jesus is asking? What would be the generous, kind, gracious thing to do? Alexander McLaren sums up the first three this way. If turning the cheek would make the assaulter more angry... Or if yielding the cloak would make the legal robber more greedy. Or going the second mile would make the press gang more severe and exacting. Resistance becomes a form of love and a duty for the sake of the wrongdoer. The question is, who are you loving? Are you loving and protecting yourself and your rights? Or are you seeking to love the other? Sometimes you do say no to giving cash. Every time somebody sticks their hand out, you might, if they said, you know, I need 20 bucks for gas, you might go fill their tank with gas. You might say, they say, I need 20 bucks for food. And you might say, let's go to the grocery store or a restaurant. I'll I'll, I'll buy you a meal. I'll I'll, I'll send you home with groceries. You, You may be suspicious about where that money is going. Now, now I do want to say, Jesus says to his disciples, I think here, don't study reasons why you feel justified not giving. 
But let my followers have a heart like mine that's ready and willing to be generous and helpful, even to people who might abuse that generosity. And that's a tough call sometimes, how it is best to be helpful. But that's the question we should be asking. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and following, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, quote, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, says Paul, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the Apostle Paul. Don't, don't repay evil for good. That's devilish. Don't repay evil for evil. That's fallen. Don't repay good or don't just repay good for good. That's worldly. Repay good for evil. For that is gracious. Overcome evil with good. So what of us? What of us? What about you? There is a time for justice and retribution. It may be in human courts or at the end of the world before God's own court. We can hope in that when great evil has been done. And we can pray. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. We leave it in his hands and we ask him to work things out and work what is a just resolution for things. But we are to be like the servant of the Lord. We are not to retaliate or seek revenge. We are to give and forgive. How can then we who are in his kingdom, the kingdom of he who didn't hold our sins against us but gave his life for us, how can we then hold the sins of others against them? We can't preach the gospel, friends. The gospel of forgiveness if we're always looking for justice in our own personal life. And then, though we may appear weak to the world, we will evidence that we are strong in the grace of the Lord. For our salvation is founded in one who was belittled, neglected, and despised by others. We slapped him on the cheek and he turns to us the other. We stripped him of cloak and tunic and hung him naked and destitute, yet he makes us co-heirs with him of the universe. We resent his commands, yet he obeys ours when we cry, crucify him. He laid aside the riches of heaven that we through his poverty might borrow his riches that we might be rich with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in him. In him, you can afford to be insulted, to lose your right, to go the extra mile, to give generously. That would make you an imitator of Christ. May Christ work himself in you that you might be formed in his own image. May God make that so for all of us. Let's pray. Father, 
before this word, not one of us can stand and say that we have done it. And we fail in many ways. Um, we're weak-hearted, cold-hearted, hard-hearted so often. Forgive us for all these things. Teach us to be more like Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.